We're, as uh, Brett, last week, if you were with us, Brett introduced us uh, to the series we're doing on the nature of the church. We, uh, we want to take these five or six weeks between now and the beginning of uh, Lent uh, to just think a little bit about what is the essential elements of the church. What, what is it that we're holding on to in this strange time of the pandemic? Because so much of what we, we uh, expect and associate with church has been removed from us in one way or the other. And so we wanted to just take a few weeks to say, so what is the essence of this thing called church? And, and how might we hold on to it? And we're doing that by looking at the uh, book of 1 Corinthians. The sort of the back half of the New Testament is a series of letters, many of them written by Paul, to particular churches. There, it, the, the Bible isn't a manual in that sense. It's not sort of God's, here, here's how to do Christianity and church. It's, it's actual letters written by real people to real churches in particular places, and you get a real sense of the individual flavor of those churches. The church in Corinth is a happening place. These are enthusiastic, fully engaged believers. They want to do this well. And, and you get a sense as you read the book over, which I'd encourage you to do over these weeks, to just get a sense of it, is there's lots going on in this church. They, they love the things of the Spirit. Their worship services are, are busy, exciting, happening kinds of gatherings. But there's also all of this weirdness going on. As, uh, as Brett pointed out last week, they've, they've started to pick which leader they're following. I like Peter, I want Paul, I'm, I'm more of an Apollos guy. There's all this strange division, there's strange moral decisions being made, they're struggling to figure out how do they relate to their society. There's all these things, chapter 8 and 9, somewhere there, about uh, what do you do when you go to somebody's place and they offer you uh, meat that's been offered to an idol. Should you eat that or shouldn't you? And what's the, how do we relate to the culture we're in? Uh, our reading this morning is from uh, chapter 3, uh, the first 11 verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So it's in the context of, of, of Paul, Paul is writing to them in these opening chapters about this division, about them picking who their favorite guy is. And he, and he sort of summarizes that section by saying this, but I, brothers, cannot address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you, you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He, he who... Um, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. 
According to the grace given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the phrases that caught me as I read this chapter was Paul saying to uh, this church, I cannot address you as spiritual people, but as fleshly people or as earthly people. Uh, And he also says, are you not being merely human? Which strikes, what, what struck me about that was, is you can do this thing called church in a purely human way. You can, you can get a group of people together and you can, you can uh, say what's important and you can get excitement going and programs and do all that kind of thing and it can have nothing to do with Christ and the things of the Spirit. It can be a merely human institution. That frightens me. Because I've devoted my life to this and there is no way I'm going to devote my life to something I've imagined or made up. I'm the only thing that's worth uh, devoting myself to is something that God is building. And so we want to take care that we build Paul is encouraging them that we're building God's temple and he's the builder, he's the foundation and we're not going to do this in a, in a fleshly way. or a, So that doesn't mean, when he says fleshly and spiritual, he doesn't mean fleshly as in we're going to build a physical building, you know, physical, and spiritual is sort of up there in the clouds. He means what, what gives life to it. What, what is, where is the energy for this coming from? Is the energy and the, the, the vitality coming from, from just our flesh? It's an earthly, uh, energized thing? Or is it something that is being energized or made alive by the Spirit? That's what Paul means when he makes this contrast of spiritual and fleshly. The Corinthians were not out to build an earthly or fleshly temple. They were after, they had tasted of the good things of God, and they wanted more of that. They were, my sense is that they were all in. They were dedicated, wholehearted, committed people. But they were Corinthians. They were building in their context. And so, uh, Brett introduced uh, this series so well last week, and if you missed that, it's on the website. I encourage you to listen to it. But he talked about, uh, about how the class structure of their society had bled into their uh, coming around the, the, the love feast and the communion table. And they were, they were eating in the same way at the, at the, in their church as they, they, were, they were conducting themselves in the same way as they did in the community. And the community was ruled by a very rigid class structure. And if you were wealthy and owned land and had money, you got everything and, and it got less and less as you went down the scale. And if you were poor and homeless, uh, you got nothing. So the question is that I want to talk about this morning then is, 
how do we build in a way that's enlivened by the Spirit? Because just like the Corinthians were all in, but had blind spots about how they saw what an what a organization looked like and how that should function, they didn't know. They were just being Corinthians. And so it, there was no problem for them that the wealthy people ate first and the poor people didn't get any food. That's how the world worked. So my question is, what's our blind spots? What are the things that we do automatically, we just assume are right, but they're not of the things of the Spirit? They're not how God wants his church built. That's what Paul says. He says, I built as a master builder. Now, we have to be really clear, what does he mean there? The master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 means the building supervisor. We are not architects of the church. God is the architect of the church. It's God's design. He's the one who's laid out the plan and said, this is what I want my church to look like. We are the building supervisor. We're building according to the plan. Now this is radically different than how I was culturally taught about the church. The culture I grew up in was that every generation had a new plan. And that somewhere along the life, in, if, you wanted, if you aspired to leadership in the church, eventually you got enough power, whatever that meant, so that you could now be the leader. And you could sort of wipe the table clean of the mess that the previous generation had made. And you could fix this mess that we're in. That's crazy. Because then I'm now the architect. Because I've got an idea that I know what to build. I can see what this community needs, and I know what we need to build here, and so I'm going to build it. No, no, that's not the picture. Paul is saying, as an apostle, I'm building according to the plan that God has given us. I wish, in some respects, that, that it looked like a blueprint. That, those make sense to me. I wish it was like that in some, some ways. I, because there's tension here, of course. Because the church is, uh, is Christ. Christ is the head of the church. But we're, we're meant to, to be the, his hands and feet of building the church in this community. And so there is a tension between what has God said and... and uh, does he desire what part of his design lasts for you know is continuous and what needs to be adapted so that his church can be relevant and compelling and interesting to the people of Cumberland and the Valley? So, as via, that's part of the tension we want to live in. We want to, uh, one of the phrases that's been used in via at different points is an ancient faith for modern life is that we want, we have, we have on, one, on one side of the tension, a real respect for what the church has consistently said. Because we, there's a sense that by looking back, we can see what it is that God is building. He's the one who's building this, and so looking back, we can say, okay, so what, what are the things that have stood the test of time? It's part of why I like the prayer of humble access so much. Because it's been said by the church from almost... To, some of the earliest, it's, it's, a very, it's based on this very, very early prayer. So to say, okay, so there's, there's something 
There's something of God in that because it's carried through. It's, it's, it's stood the test of time. But our, our still, our, our desire is not to build something old because it's cool and that collars are so much fun or whatever, whatever you want to pick. We want to build a church that's a clear and compelling witness to this ancient faith here. It's, it's something that we do only if we follow God's design. We're not the architects. We're building according to God's design. Consider for a moment. Go back and read the last half of the book of Exodus. Pages and pages and pages of detail about what the, the tabernacle should look like. God's into design. He's into very minute details. The, the cloth has to be this color. The hooks that you hang the curtains from have to be this shape and made of that metal. And it has to be this long and this wide. And he's a details guy. Secondly, the thing I notice, if we're going to build a spiritual temple, if we're going to build what God wants to build, we have to build with room for God. In Chapter, the beginning of chapter 2, Paul, right, he's still in this same section. You guys are picking winners uh, and, and your favorite hero. He says to them, I came to you, brothers, not, not, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This is, these are verses that we in the, in, the, in the wealthy, privileged North American church need to hear. Because we've built far too many churches on the wisdom and strength of, of an individual. The anointing and the giftings of God on particular people are amazing. But we cannot build on them. We're, we're, it would be preferable to us that we build on weakness and fear and trembling so that people would see the power and strength of the Spirit in what we're building. I think it's, it's, it's in the gap between what we're capable of and what God wants to build that God shows up. And I think some of the reason we see so little of God in the North American church is because we've covered all the bases. Wanda's giving me instructions on the road. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we think we're supposed to do everything as leaders. And so I take care of all, everything as much as I can. And I build a church that's got everything covered and then wonder why God doesn't show up. Well, it's because I've not left any space for him. I've got it covered. I'll let you know when I need you. What if the whole point of not knowing how to cover something is that's where God wants to step in? It's between our limitation and what God has designed that God wants to... He's going to fill in that gap. It's not, it's not just a challenge to us to say, come on guys, stretch a little further, work a little harder, be more committed. Mm -hmm. 
that sounds good, but it's harder than it looks. Because it's very uncomfortable for us to not know, not have a plan, not have everything covered. So practically in our setting, when we, I've started to, to, to prepare myself mentally to say, so whenever they let us get back into in-person services, probably realistically we're talking about a September kind of relaunch. So what am I supposed to all cover there? What are we supposed to have ready? Well, we can work really hard for the next nine months to get that all ready and not have God present. What do we have then? Nothing. Gaps make us uncomfortable. Gaps make weakness makes us feel foolish and unconfident. And our need to feel comfortable and in charge and have a plan means that we measure the wrong things. If we're going to make room for God, we best measure what's important to God and we best leave some space for him to move. And then finally, Paul says, build on a true foundation. So that's really the the culmination of what he says in chapter 3. He's, and I didn't read the whole chapter, but he goes on, on this basic idea, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So now you'd be hard-pressed if you did a survey of all the churches in North America or even in the world, Christian churches, and said, is Jesus your foundation? Everyone knows the right answer to that is yes. And yet you look at the, at the state of the churches, even just the, even just the variety of churches that exist in this valley, how is that the same foundation? We have picked in North America some, some aspects of Jesus, but not the true foundation. We've picked our favorite parts of Jesus. The church I grew up in, the part of Je- Jesus wasn't my savior. He wasn't my foundation. He was my standard. Work hard till you function like Jesus. And when you, if you're not like Jesus, shut up till you get there. <laughs> Keep your hand. Don't look, don't look to the left or the right. Because you're not like Jesus yet. We'll listen to you when you are. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this to this church, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So this is the basic apostolic model. This is the basic, uh, this is the basic um, tenant of why we have bishops that Paul received from the apostles and from Christ, which he also delivered or passed on to them. That's, the, that's this idea that we have a, a, a succession of bishops. The bishops are only created by other bishops. You can't, I can't just sort of decide, I'm going to be bishop today. I need other bishops to, you know, it's this succession that goes back to the beginning. It's this idea that the, that the center foundation of the gospel has been passed from one individual to the next, to the next, to the next for 2,000 years. And what is that foundation? 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and he goes on. This is the aspect, this is where our foundation must lie. It must be Christ was here and died. He was buried and he was raised again. That has to be where we camp. There's lots of cool stuff about Jesus. But if we will not camp here, we've missed the mark. It's like saying, they built my house exactly right, but they shifted it two feet to the left. Well, it's not right then. It's not on the foundation anymore. Then it's more like Kelsey's trailer in the wind than a house <laughs> or a temple. Why would we camp on the fact that Jesus came, he died, was buried, and resurrection? I think it's because more so than even in the incarnation, which we've just celebrated at Christmas. But it's in Jesus' death and burial and resurrection that we have the coming together of the divine and the human. It's, it's here where holiness and sin interact. It's where heaven and earth are interacting in the most profound way, where life and death meet face to face and something is settled once and for all, where the infinite uh, life and power of God gains victory over the apparent pervasiveness of death and sin. And this is where we live our lives. That's the message we need. We need all of Jesus. But if we don't come back to, if we're not, if we're not uh, aligned ourselves and camped firmly on his death and resurrection, if we don't know what the implications of that are, if we can't express that to people, we've missed the most important part. And we can talk about Jesus as our friend and as, as a guy who had some interesting things to say or however you want to present him. But if we will not come to this foundation, we've missed the mark. And we will, we will rob people of the most important place where their lives are living. Because this is the questions that are being raised in a pandemic. Is, is there any surety and firm place or is, is, the, is, is the world a haphazard place in which death can run rampant and I can do nothing about it? Who's really in charge? Those are the questions that are answered in the death and resurrection of Jesus. It makes a difference about how we do church. It's why we always come to the table. Because it doesn't matter where we're going to speak from. And we want to, we want to, we want to present in our, in our time of the word the whole of scripture and the message of Christ. But we always want to come back to the table. We always want to come back to the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We want to remind ourselves that's what the liturgy does. It tells the whole story of salvation in six minutes. It's, it's, it's been crafted together over years and years to try to 
hold and bring us back to that central foundation. Jesus came. There was a problem of sin. Jesus came. He's the answer to that. His death is, the, is, is, is a victory over sin and death. And it's in him that our own victory lies. That's why we always come back here. We always partake again of forgiveness that comes through the cross because that's where we're living. That's of first importance. So, in some ways, how are we building is a question for us as a parish council that we're going to meet, not this week, but next, and that's one of the questions we'll be talking about. But the question is also relevant for you. You are the church. You are God's field, God's building, Paul says in, this, in, in our passage. How are you building? What, what, what have you contributed to the building of the church in the last two weeks? What is God inviting you to build and what would you add to his church this week? What's What's he given you? What are the materials and the skills that he's given you to build with?